Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Belarus's president, Alexander Lukashenko, has been in office for 26 years. After last week's elections, he says he won yet another term. But Belarusians are saying enough is enough, with thousands of them taking to the streets in protest and demanding new elections. So far, Lukashenko has shot down this request. The majority of Belarusians identify as Christian. Of the country's roughly 10 million people, 73% are Orthodox and 12% are Catholic. And those numbers are from Pew Research Center data from a couple of years ago. Though the Protestant community is tiny, it has not been silent on political matters. Last week, the Union of Evangelical Christian Baptists in Belarus United Church of Christians of Evangelical Faith in Belarus and the Religious Association of Full Gospel Communities in Belarus released a joint statement asking for prayer. And it said in part, pray for all people, for those in charge, that they have the fear of God and remember that there is a supreme judge over them who we will all give account to. It also said, pray for an end to the violence and bloodshed and for all those affected and their families. Pray that the Lord will save us from hatred, vengeance, and resentment. We wanted to get a sense of the political, but also religious situation in this Eastern European nation. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, Editorial Director at Christianity Today. Ted, time to do a gut check. What are your thoughts about what is happening in Belarus? Yeah, I've been following it, I guess, distantly. You know, I, here's, here's the summary. You know how in The Economist, uh, there's that one page where they give you all the one-sentence summaries of, of stuff going on in the world. Interested enough to, to get those updates, but have not necessarily popped into the back of The Economist to read the longer pieces on this. So I am eager to learn more about this. My interest on the religious aspects is particularly keen because I have a number of friends who had been missionaries to Belarus, especially right after the fall of communism. I don't know if, in fact, uh, Belarus was one of the places where it was kind of a missionary center for American missionaries at that time. But at least in my circle, Belarus was was a, was a heavy focus. So one of those places I have kind of a, a secondary connection to. So I'm, I'm interested. How about, how about you, Morgan? I follow a number of, I don't know, Eastern European correspondents, mostly because of things that have happened in Ukraine in the past decade or so. And around last week, I saw a number of folks tweeting about stuff in Belarus. But I would say that I just really don't know the situation there. And since I don't really know the situation there, I'm not, I wasn't necessarily attuned to what was going to make it interesting or if there was a previous time that something had been happening. You know, sometimes you just don't even know the status quo (laughs) in a place. So when you know that people are protesting, it doesn't necessarily give enough context to do all of that. Yeah, I guess I'm just thankful that we're doing a podcast about this country because the next time something like this happens, I'll have a lot more information to make judgments about. 
That's why we got an expert to talk to about this. So let me introduce her quickly here. Our guest today is Geraldine Fagan. Geraldine is the editor of the East-West Church Report and author of Believing in Russia, Religious Policy After Communism. She has extensively reported on Belarus, especially its religious freedom aspects, for 20 years. I've read her work over the years and thrilled that she's here. Geraldine, welcome to Quick to Listen. Hello. Geraldine, as you can tell... <laughs> Ted and I just need some basic facts here. So, why don't you just start by telling us about the country of Belarus, who are its neighbors, and what has life been like there since the fall of the USSR? Belarus is a pretty small country in the east of Europe, as you said, around 10 million inhabitants. It was a republic that was part of the Soviet Union until that country collapsed in the early 90s. It has actually retained a very strong kind of Soviet-style government since Lukashenko took over in 1994, unlike its neighbours. So to the, to the north, you have the Baltic states, which are all now members of the European Union, along with Poland to the west, and Ukraine, which was also part of the Soviet Union, certainly since um, 2014, when it's pro Putin president was removed by popular demonstrations. That country, too, has, has taken a, a very strongly pro-democratic line, by and large. And then to the east, of course, you still have, have Russia. But even though, obviously, Putin's reputation is, is increasingly that of a dictator, his rule, even though it's also gone on for a couple of decades now, has not been anything like draconian as that of Lukashenko. Culturally, is it fairly European? Is it is it similar to Poland? Is it similar to the Baltic states? I'm, I'm just kind of curious about how it is. Is there a strong Belarusian identity? The thing about Belarus is it's only really since the collapse of the Soviet Union that it's had an independent status. So it's a territory that's been sort of gone back and forth between Poland, the Russian Empire. So it has influences from both sides. The present day territory of it, about the Western Third, was actually in Poland between the two world wars. And what that meant was, and Poland at that point was democratic. What that meant was a lot of democratic traditions, a lot of national feeling was able to be preserved in that part. And it's meant that Belarus was never really completely absorbed by the Soviet Union culturally. And does it have still that kind of Catholic thread that Poland has? How is it kind of religiously oriented? You have to think of it in terms of the further west you go, the more religious life you're likely to have. And also, yeah, the Catholic, it, the Catholics are a minority. I think there's around 500 churches there now, which is a similar number to before World War One, actually. And they're, again, mostly concentrated in the west, where you also have even a few Polish speakers. So the majority, it's a definitely a nominal majority, are Orthodox. And then you have something like 6% Protestants. It's around a thousand communities now, which is which is a huge increase since before and the Soviet period. But I would say that in terms of attendance and active participation in church life, that's about twice as high as in Russia, according to the few bits of polling there are. And also, I would say that it's a, if you take just the active Christians, I would say that they're more evenly spread between the different denominations. So it may be slightly few, fewer Catholic, but certainly the Protestants, they're not that insignificant. You know, they're really playing a very active role in social life, in, in public life. 
maybe you can give us a little bit of a sense of where the Protestant church came from and how long it's been in the country. It doesn't have a sort of like unbroken tradition, but really you can sort of have it have as your starting point. I would say actually you can go back to 1553, which was when the person, the man who was in charge of the what is now Belarusian territory, was a man called Mikolai Radzivil the Black, and he converted to Calvinism in 1553. At that point, this Belarusian territory was part of a a state with Poland and he was like the number two person in this kind of unified state after his conversion in fact Calvin actually dedicated one of his works to him he sponsored a lot of building of of Protestant churches Belarusian territory then was actually known in the west of Europe as a place of refuge for Protestants who were being persecuted in France and, and England. Protestants have this, you know, quite amazing period in the 1500s when religious tolerance was it was codified in the local legislation. There was very good relationships with the Catholic community. King of Poland was a really good friend of this Mikolai the Black. Then in the modern period, it really it's from the like early 1900s, late 19th century, early early 1900s, you get the first communities in on Belarusian territory. But there are major churches that, you know, several generations of of Protestants basically forming the main Protestant churches in in that kind of period. I definitely want to keep talking about Protestantism, especially as it relates to the protests and some of the religious freedom issues that we're going to get into from here. But I think we also have to kind of talk a little bit about the current situation right now. So Lungashenko has been in power almost since the fall of the Soviet Union. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what his time in office has looked like. And about the time (laughs) he seemingly transitioned from a politician and the country was a democracy to maybe something that felt more authoritarian. It was very briefly a democracy, you know, just for a few years from kind of 1991 to 1994, when he took over. Basically, people were concerned by the growth of corruption. He won that first election fairly. He had partly a military background. He was also had been involved in administration of, of the collective farms in the country. So he, he had a kind of reputation of being kind of orderly, you know, and, and somebody who'd sought out any any kind of corruption but after that i mean this is is basically acknowledged that he did not win you know, fairly win any elections since then and he's so he's now as i say he's he's been in power for for five terms does that tend to be making folks complacent about it or is there i mean where where is the protest coming from is it coming from more younger voices or or people who have kind of longer memories he is also a very much nostalgic for the Soviet period, as you might expect, given the collective farm background. In fact, you know th- those few brief years when Belarus was a democracy were not long enough, really, to jettison all the various oppressive organs of the Soviet government. So, for instance, he retained the KGB in Belarus is still called the KGB. They're totally proud of their history of oppression during the Soviet periods. They've retained a whole network of officials that are responsible for religious affairs, who whose job is to kind of control the religious communities. Obviously, you know, no political opposition. The whole style of his rule has been incredibly Soviet. I mean, it's a, it's in many ways like being in a time war. If you were to go certainly, you know, back a few years and visit 
you'll see the same statues of Lenin, even till recently the kind of slogans above the buildings. Also, the economy has also been run in a very much a government-controlled fashion as well. There is private business. It's pretty difficult to do anything at all independent of the Lukashenko regime. I mean, if not impossible, you have to actually have some kind of consideration for, for whether it's going to be what you're doing is going to be something that is going to be approved by the regime or not. I've seen some of the photos of some of these rallies over the last couple of days. Are those cross Belarus? Are they cross-cultural or are they from one particular area of the demographic? No, they're absolutely everywhere. And that's actually one of the surprising things, especially given you know what I said about the Western part of being you know slightly less Sovietized. In fact, they've just had just as large rallies in the east of the country, the cities that are closer to Russia. So Gomel and Vitebsk. I mean, they've also had really large demonstrations and uh, with thousands of protesters. So it does seem that it's pretty much across the country and it appears to be from every walk of life except the political elite, Lukashenko's immediate circle and cronies and also the security agencies, of course. I mean, again, that's not not completely. There have been examples of police and resigning and making public statements that they're not going to be involved in oppression of the protest movement. Other than those two categories, it seems to be pretty much everyone involved in the protests. You had mentioned earlier that there had been previous protests. I think we had talked about this maybe before we started recording. I was wondering if you can just say a little bit about that. And then I would appreciate your take and analysis on whether or not you think these protests are going to, these new protests will have some larger effect or if he'll kind of manage to hold on to power through them. As the regime got increasingly oppressive, I mean, I have studied this through the prism of how the the Christian communities have been involved in the protest movement. Certainly after the elections in 2006, there were there were demonstrations in which Christian communities were involved and were marching with, for instance, you know, using the, the Beatitudes from the Gospels as a, as, a, as a slogan on their banners. Those demonstrations were relatively small. I mean, tens of thousands of people maybe, and they were unsuccessful, clearly. Then again, in 2010, after the presidential elections then, the protests following those elections were brutally crushed. They were, again, much smaller scale, but I think the Christians then were really surprised by the brutality that was shown by the police. Plenty of people were, you know, detained for 10 days simply for attending the demonstration, or even, as now, for being nearby and just randomly being arrested, dragged off by riot police. And that really was a kind of turning point as far as the Christians were concerned in, in terms of how they thought about the Lukashenko regime. So traditionally in Belarus, I mean, and elsewhere, even in the former Soviet Union, the Christian particularly the Protestant communities, have been predominant thinking, has been to interpret Romans 13 about submission to the authorities as meaning that they should just accept the, the Lukashenko regime, just try and follow the law and basically not raise their voices and not go out to protest. During that period, during the 2010 
elections. What I found then was there was a real shift. I'd interviewed quite a few Protestants who had been active in the democracy movement, and they they said that after a while, after having to compromise so far with the restrictions on ordinary religious activity, they just simply couldn't do it anymore. And they began to look elsewhere in terms of what they should be doing from a Christian point of view. And certainly one Pentecostal I spoke to appointed to a verse in Isaiah, in Isaiah 59, saying that the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice and he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. And they saw this as a telling them that really God, while despising falsehood, was not going to you know, just produce freedom for them out of a hat, that really they had to get involved and they had to actually start trying to work for democracy themselves. And so I think particularly since then, there's been a, an increasingly strong pro-democracy movement within the church and that I mean has sort of interacted with the other pro-democracy movements and has just gradually built momentum over the years since then and I think this is really just the dam bursting basically and people just are not prepared to tolerate restrictions that are actually hinging upon you know their consciences essentially and you know you see that in the slogans you know what the some of the slogan one of the slogans i saw in the on one on a placard in the recent demonstrations was was just simply you know i have a conscience yeah fascinating is that you've also extensively reported on russia and, and religious freedom and the role of the church there i mean we've done some reports in ct about you know how pro-Putin evangelicals in Russia have been, and 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 that kind of thing is what's happening in Belarus. You think significantly different than what you might be seeing in other you know, former Soviet countries in terms of that what you've just described with the church being kind of fed up with more totalitarian actions. So the difference in Belarus is that the situation was so much more draconian than Russia until very recently. So from about 1999 2000 onwards, essentially. In practice, it was completely important for a religious community to operate. It had to have the permission of the government for everything, especially anything in a public place. So you needed to have, if you tried to do, if you had a, a church that was actually registered by the government as a religious building, for which, of course, you need the permission of the state. You could do what you liked more or less inside the church, although you would still have people, informants and people from the KGB keeping an eye on you to make sure that you were not doing anything out of line. If you tried to do anything in the public arena, you had to have advanced permission from the government. Otherwise, I mean, this happened quite regularly, you know, you would be fined you know, a few hundred dollars, which might not sound much to that, but to a Belarusian, that's quite a lot. You know, for instance, for holding a Bible study in your home, you know, ha trying to hold, have a, a youth camp, for instance, something like that, or publishing literature, which hadn't been expressly permitted by the government, which was very much stricter at that point than the conditions in, in Russia. I'm curious if you can just Tell us a little bit about how all these different Christian denominations and traditions interact with one another. How do the Catholics get along with the Orthodox, get along with the Protestants? What are the issues that bring them together and what are some of the big things that keep them apart? The hierarchies, the clergy, the senior clergy of these of the various churches don't tend to interact very much. The Orthodox in Belarus 
are are very close to the Russian Orthodox Church. I mean, they're technically a part of the of the Russian Orthodox Church, and they have, I mean, even now, been very cautious in coming out with any kind of statement that might be interpreted as criticism of Lukashenko. And we're really only seeing that begin to change in the last few days. And, and even then, only by individual bishops, so the Bishop of Grodno in the West, the Orthodox Bishop, just in the last couple of days, gave a sermon that was really critical of the brutality by the, the riot police this week. They have been very much you know, looking towards Russia and you know, not looking to rock the boat. The Catholic Church has actually been quite similar, largely because it's basically reliant upon the state to function, or has been, because there have been so many restrictions on foreign citizens being involved in church life. And the Catholic Church has a shortage of priests who are Belarusian citizens. So about a third of their clergy are, are well, mostly Polish. And over the years, they've had about 20 or 30 of those priests expelled from the country just for violating all this web of regulation that, that the Lukashenko regime has put, imposed on the churches. So again, they've been very cautious and just really focused on, on trying to, to sort of function. The Protestant churches Again, the leadership, they've tried very hard, I think, to comply with the laws for the most part. And it's been either individual churches. There's one large Pentecostal church in particular, a church called New Line, in the outskirts of Minsk, which quite early on took a completely uncompromising position with the regime. It was basically, you know, a war with the government for many years, trying to hold on to its building, you know, trying to, it had a disused barn that it turned into a church and it basically battled for years to get permission to meet in this building but that's about the only example of a church sort of breaking the mold but in terms of collaboration or cooperation between the different churches that all takes place at a lower level as i mentioned these christians who were involved in the pro-democracy movement are of all the denominations and they all work together incredibly well there's no kind of concern about which which church anybody belongs to and and that's really also the basis of any kind of ecumenical movement that exists in in Belarus it's it's all one with the pro democracy movement really is there much communication or relationship kind of cross border how kind of uniquely belarusian are some belarusian churches or is there a lot of cross-pollination with Western churches, with Russian, for the evangelicals, like Russian evangelicals and Belarusian evangelicals. What's the, what, what are those relationships like? I would say there's a much closer ties with Ukraine. So Ukraine has so many commonalities with Belarus, again, having this Western part that was under Poland and so, uh, you know, much more religious tradition surviving in that area. Also a similar history of the Protestant churches. So within the Russian Empire, the, the Protestant churches really were, you know, earliest and strongest in these Western parts. There's a lot of cultural similarities and I think they've worked together. I think it's hard for me to say where it came first, but this whole idea of switching from a kind of submissive attitude to the authorities to becoming active in the public square you know, I think that's also a feature of the shift towards democracy in Ukraine in recent years, uh, which the churches have also been very 
involved in in Ukraine. And it's difficult to know whether that started in Belarus or Ukraine, but I think there was a lot of, you know, liaising between between the two communities. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're we're in in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So when we think of this Protestant population, can you tell us a little bit more about them? Are these people who were previously Catholic or Orthodox who are now moving into a different tradition? Is it mostly Gen Z and millennials or is it represent people from all different generations? What's the type of demographic with regards to socioeconomic status or education level? Give us a sense of what that community looks like. So yeah, the largest groups are Baptists, Pentecostals, particularly charismatic Pentecostals. And they do, as I say, they all have, by and large, they all have some sort of quite historical origin. So there'll be families who converted in the early 1900s and who are formed like a basis of the community that's still, that is quite common. As I, I think I also said, they the numbers have grown, I would say, probably tenfold in the last hundred years in terms of the number of communities. They're not normally converts from another tradition, Catholic or Orthodox. It's normally people who have previously, you know, led a pretty secular kind of Soviet life, you know. In terms of age and it's pretty much all ages. There is a strong youth youth component, particularly in the in the charismatic churches. One thing that's quite popular in these churches is a kind of Christian rock presence, and that was actually one way of evading the sort of restrictions on religious activity, in that it could 
appear to be something, you know, more like an ordinary rock band with, you know, lyrics that were Christian. If you really listen, there's some quite majorly popular Christian rock bands in Belarus. It actually kind of ironically Lukashenko's restrictions have allowed the Protestant churches to be quite creative in terms of how they address the outside world. They do manage to have things like youth camps, which, as I say, might not appear so overtly Christian, which has helped to draw in a lot of young people. That was my impression of, of how the young people have been involved in that. And then, as I say, a lot of the, the pro-democracy demonstrators are young they have also become involved in the churches, the Orthodox and the Catholic churches, driven by this you know, desire for you know, their ideals of truth and justice and, and so on, has actually led them to church life as a space within Belarus where those ideals are, are held. I mentioned at the top of the show that back in the 90s, the you know, fall of communism, that I knew some folks that, that kind of went in as missionaries. But foreign missions is, you know, you mentioned religious restrictions. Foreign missions is, is banned, as I understand it, in Belarus. Are there tent-making ministries? Are there Christians operating there? Or is it pretty closed off to kind of foreign Christian work? Are there development, Christian development groups? What's what's going on there? It's pretty closed off. There were particular restrictions on foreigners. So to be a foreign citizen actively involved in a religious organization, you had to have special permission from the government, like a license from the government, which, as I, as I mentioned, these various Catholic priests from obtained if they were lucky. As far as the Protestant community is concerned, I'm not aware of a foreign Protestant. There might have been just a handful that were able to teach theology at one point as I said these Protestant communities are closely watched by the secret police reminded of one case when there were some Danish a couple of Danish Protestants visited a Protestant church and they as just tourists with with tourist visas and they were deported simply for addressing the church they weren't even you know serving as pastors or something they just spoke to the congregation and then they were deported from the country a few days later. So, I mean, that basically just illustrates how impossible it is for any kind of Protestant mission work by foreigners. It's easier for, obviously, for, say, Russian citizens or, or Ukrainians who don't necessarily need a visa. For Westerners, uh, it basically blocked off. We mentioned at the top of the show some of Belarus's neighbors. And, you know, there's interesting things happening with in Poland right now with regards to their government and the way that Poland feels about the EU. Obviously, it seems like Putin will be staying in power for a lot longer. What are some of the big storylines that you see in the next five to 10 years in the region, specifically as it will be affecting the Christian community? So much depends upon how long these various leaders are able to stay in power. One concern the, obviously the Russian government has, possibly its main concern, in fact, is is whether, is if the current pro-democracy movement in Belarus, if that is successful, how that is going to inspire events in, in Russia itself. I would estimate like a similar level of discontent in many parts of Russia, maybe not Moscow, but there are many regions where life is run along still pretty Soviet lines. Perhaps not coincidental that there's large demonstrations in the very far east of Russia at the moment in a city called Khabarovsk, where 
for weeks, tens of thousands of people have been taking to the streets to protest the removal of, of a, a mayor that they supported. For the Christian communities, I mean, in Russia, they're also coming under increasing pressure. Since around 2016, there's been many more restrictions on sharing religious beliefs in, in any public and in some cases even private contexts. And the Protestants in particular are concerned by increasing pressure on their ability to provide like further advanced theological education because a number of their seminaries have, have had to stop functioning in, in the last couple of years. Really, I mean, the, here again, the, the, you know, the pro-democracy movement is directly going to impact how free Christians are in in these in these areas, you know, a lot is riding on how long these Putin and, and Lukashenko are able to stay in power. What do you think that the global church right now can learn from Belarusian Christians? You know, one quality that really stands out is their determination over so many years. You know, just I personally just cannot imagine a week in week out having to follow all these at least outwardly, all these various rules and regulations you know, year after year, just fighting for the simple right to have your own property and to gather in it as a Christian community, to know that somewhere in that congregation there's going to be people who are spying on you and watching what you're preaching in your sermon and looking to see what you're planning to do. And I think that the fact that they've... I mean, we still don't know what don't know how these demonstrations are going to turn out. But you know, the fact that they've managed to weather that for so long and come out with such a, a optimistic kind of campaigning spirit for a kind of better, you know, democratic future is is really quite impressive. When we think about praying for Christians who are in oppressive regimes, you know, we, we often pray for perseverance and encouragement. What might be something that people wouldn't think to pray for for Belarusian Christians right now? I'll just mention one Baptist. So this week, among the thousands of people who were arrested and brutally beaten in detention centers, there was a, a Belarusian Baptist called Sergei Melianitz. I've been in touch with him and I asked him this exact question. He tells me that he, you know what his request for Christians in the West you know, how, and elsewhere, how they could best pray for Belarusian Christians. He, he asks for prayers that the brutal treatment of ordinary citizens will be ended, that there will be a peaceful transition of power away from Lukashenko. Most of all, he asks for prayers that there might be a spiritual awakening in Belarus and that more people will turn to God and ask for his help. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this information with us, Geraldine. I, for one, learned a lot. We've been covering, as Ted mentioned at the beginning, a lot of stuff that's happening in America. And there's obviously been a lot of protests there. So it's interesting to kind of think about protests happening in another part of the world and what that might mean for how we understand protests here in this country. So really appreciate that. For people who have thoughts or questions or commentary, please send us an email. We're at podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak. 
and we get a chance to hear from our listeners who have sent in feedback regarding the show. So the first email that we have is from Ryan Tudor, who is writing on an episode that we did recently about civil disobedience and Pastor John MacArthur, who has been holding indoor church services at his California church despite the COVID policies and procedures and rulings that have been put in place in that state. So this is what Ryan says. Your guest was outstanding especially the historical comparisons and contrasts. My opinion, the greatest strength was also a bit of a weakness. I felt like there was tons and tons of interesting history, but in the end, I was waiting for comment on MacArthur's decision. I felt like, given some precedents, like the civil rights movement or pro-life movements, not exact parallels, mind you, the table was set for A, MacArthur is mostly right or mostly wrong, and here's why, or here's what is compelling about his decision, here are the pitfalls. I almost felt like the key question was avoided. For the sake of context, I am not a MacArthurite by any means and have not appreciated some of his recent comments on social justice and before that, his critique of charismatic movements. In this instance, however, I think he may be closer to the mark. As a pastor in Canada, there are some differences in our relationship to and with government. Moreover, the case numbers are significantly lower. Like anywhere, lots of issues to grapple with on a local level. Ryan (laughs) I'm telling you, I'm sorry that you did not get the satisfaction of hearing us tell you how we came down on MacArthur. Suspense. (laughs) Suspense. That's one of the things that we've debated. That's what the beginning part of this for, the gut check. I agree that we didn't really say something on that, but I actually think that is why it made it a little bit more thought-provoking. Exactly. On this one. No, I agree. I mean, you know, as he says at the end, you know, there's lots of issues to grapple with on a local level. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of, I still have that. That's my that's still my gut check on that thing. It's like these questions are not necessarily super easy. In that spirit, let me read two letters on a similar thing. The first is from Peter Pendell. Thank you so much for the refreshing and helpful backstory you bring to so many subjects. Subscribe to CT, listen to the podcast each week. Please shorten your questions. They're great questions. They include too many words. I'm a pastor, so I know how offensive this email may sound. Please forgive me for that. I mean to help, not hurt. No, Peter, it's completely accurate, as indicated by another letter from our friend down the road, Anita Dynica, who uh, also works in a former Soviet Hi, Morgan and Ted. As a longtime and appreciative listener of Quick to Listen, thank you both for inviting response from your listeners. You have knowledgeable guests, an important and excellent choice of topics. Your willingness to tackle topics of contention among Christians is commendable. Ted, your comments are perspicacious. Would it be possible that they could be somewhat condensed, perhaps more focused? I think that would strengthen (laughs) an already outstanding program. You're both right. My questions go on way too long, and I have more to say about that. But in the spirit (laughs) of these letters, I will just stop there. (laughs) <laughs> he will practice the quick to listen part. I will practice the slow to speak. This is slow to speak, so I will be oh, less slow to No, no, other than to say, yep, sorry about that. I totally agree. Also, uh, someone mentioned that I'm not letting Morgan get in enough questions, so I'm working on these issues. But no, I well, truly, we appreciate feedback like this. And so please do email us at ctpodcasts, with an S, at christianitytoday.com. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where we ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, you're up. So Morgan, as we talk, I am at home waiting for the gas company. We actually lost our 
gas line yesterday at our house. It busted basically from the front street to our backyard. We're going to have our, our side yard, hopefully not terribly torn up, but a, a little bit, not necessarily a moment of joy. But here's my my joy is that A, the gas company pays for this one. I've lost some pipes, some sewage pipes and some other pipes before. And I'm grateful that Clive and I were sitting here. We're like, you know, we are grateful that we can say, well, let's, we have to order out dinner because we don't have gas. We are grateful that we called the gas company and they were here in seconds after we said we smell crazy ton of gas in our backyard. We are grateful that they are taking care to try to save as many trees and yard landscaping as we thought. We were like, man, you know, <laughs> this is, it's, it's not great that we have to deal with this, but like, if we have to deal with this, this is about the easiest way to deal with something like this as we possibly could. Plus, you know, we had a, a major gas problem where nobody got hurt and everything was everything was fine. You know, was this after it, you didn't have electricity all last week? Yeah, we were saying it's been a crazy week. We lost electricity because of the derecho <laughs> storm. Then we lost internet because of, I guess, some of the cleanup for the derecho storm for another 24 hours after that. We lost our gas, you know, so it's been it's been quite a week. But and we you had get a dog. A, yeah, and we got a dog. So, you know, that, that's that been the counterbalance is anytime we've we're stressing about any of that stuff. We just grab the puppy, you put it in your, your lap, you give the puppy pets for a good 10 minutes. All of your stress just dissipates into the ether. So it's a wow. wonderful, <laughs> we, live in a, we, live, we live in a privileged, happy life over here. Morgan, what is giving you joy? I'm doing a lot of the same old, same old summer during COVID things of going to parks, <laughs> jumping in the lake. <laughs> That's good. Very sweet desserts. I did get to try Oatly last week, and I'm only going to make a big deal about it because I try to make a big deal about it. In Chicago right now, on almost all the public transportation, I don't know, signs, advertisements, they have advertisements for this, I don't know, oat milk ice cream thing. (laughs) And last Wednesday, I was like, okay, fine, you win. And I went to Target and I went to a grocery store and I couldn't find Oatly at either one. And I was like, this is so dumb. I literally want to try the thing that you've been advertising all over, <laughs> literally like all over the city. And I had not even left the grocery store and then the bo- a bus drove past with an Oatly advertisement. Like, <laughs> so, so anyway, I did find Oatly on Friday night and I ate a whole pint of it because my friend did not want the pint of it. And it was okay. <laughs> it was okay. All that lead up to it being, it was fine. It was fine. I don't know if I would spend that much on a pint of a frozen dessert again, but I will say that buying pints is way cheaper than buying two scoops of ice cream. That's at true. most places where you buy ice cream from. But anyway, it was just fun because like I said, I literally have had like, on like Saturday morning, for instance, I had a kind of like grapefruit smoothie slash I don't know, icy drink and an Italian ice before 11 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just kind of like going crazy with those things. That's what I'm spending all my money on. So why not try Oatly as well? Why not? It's still summertime and we can, you know, try different frozen desserts. That's the thing. Remember, Ted, a couple years ago, we had Popsicle Club too. And we ate popsicles at the office. Anyway. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I remember that it tapered off and that those popsicles stayed in the freezer for way too long. No. So there may, they may still be down there, Morgan, if you want to go check the freezer <laughs> in, the, in the office kitchen there. Morgan, uh, we should do our socials. I'm at uh, Ted Olson. That's Olson with an E. And I haven't talked about board games, although my family played a epic game of Just One last night. 
a great party game. You should get it. It's cheap and it's a fun family game. Morgan, what's your social? M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, Geraldine, over to you. I'm on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., but we have quite a lot of green space around us. At this time of year, I tend to get lots of wildlife visiting. And yesterday we had about seven deer, including quite a few young stags coming into our yard, which was quite quite a nice thing to see. And probably the best way that you could see something of the publication I edit, which is East West Church Report, is to find us on Facebook, East West Church Reports, and then all the details of subscription are, are all there. If you're interested in Christian life in Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, that's what we specialize in. So, What are you guys doing over in your part of the country for the summer? Are you also go, being outside a lot? Yeah, I mean, we've been out, it's been incredibly hot. In July, it was like above 90 Fahrenheit every day. Had a little trip into West Virginia where it was really mm-hmm. much nicer and cool and up in the up in the mountains. But otherwise, we've just been yeah, just trying to get through the worst of the of the humidity <laughs> of the Washington of the Washington summer. But yeah, I'd also be going outside and looking yard work, whatever possible. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. The podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps and Boomy Ashola does the transcript. If you would like to give us feedback, we invite you to send us emails at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're on Twitter at CT Podcast. And you can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts as well. The podcast is available wherever you want to listen to podcasts. We will see you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.